much for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, will legalizing secondary suites throughout BC help with our housing shortage or just lead to more congested neighborhoods? Plus, why were the Surrey police transition estimates so far off? We look at the actual cost Surrey and potentially BC taxpayers will be stuck with. And foreign interference was the Indian government behind the slaying of a Sikh leader in Surrey. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's talk about the BC government's new pilot program to encourage secondary suites. Today, Premier David Eby was joined by other officials to provide uh, an update on the NDP's housing plan, which includes a pilot program that will provide 3,000 homeowners with forgivable loans of up to $40,000 to help cover the costs of creating rental suites. Uh, The program is set to launch in April of 2024. Uh, It's also expected that uh, this fall legislation will pass, making secondary suites legal everywhere in the province. Here is Premier David Eby. We are uh, very hungry for rental housing in this province with the population growth that we've seen. And there are people deciding, do I want to be a landlord? I don't know. It seems like there are a lot of things that I have to go through. Permits I need. I don't know what the rules are. This guy takes people from the beginning to the end, from the stage of uh, contractor to the permits that you need for construction. Where if you want to build a home in British Columbia, you don't have to navigate your way on your own through the maze of the provincial government. Uh, it has every step that you need. It takes you from beginning to end to help you understand all of the permits that you need. That was Premier David Eby uh, speaking earlier in uh, regards to this program. Well, joining me now is Nathan Cullen, Minister of Water, Land and Resource Stewardship. Uh, Minister, thank you for joining us today. For sure, John. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, generally, we'd be speaking to the Minister of Housing, but uh, you're playing a role in this as well. Walk me hmm. through as a citizen in regards to, if I wanted to move forward with this plan, how would it work? Well, there's, there's a couple of things that were announced today. Uh, two pieces. One is to help home builders through a single application, help them walk with them through the permits that they need through the province and continue to speed up permits. In the last uh, six to eight months, we've been dramatically reducing the time it takes for home builders to get the different types of permits they need from the province. Because we know when you're building a home, t- time is literally money. If it takes you longer to build the home, it's more interest rates, it's more delay, it's more costs, which makes the home, whether it's a rental or for someone to buy, more expensive for the person looking to live there. The second thing, and this is really important, is that we know there's a lot of folks looking to do secondary suites. There might be a couple things in their way, maybe money, and that's why we're talking about the potential of a $40,000 forgivable loan for people to be able to put those units in. And also on the permitting side, uh, how do I do this, as the Premier was talking about, the easy steps, what kind of permits do you need, what kind, and also best practices, what kinds of things should you be paying attention to, is your house set up the right way to do a secondary suite or build a carriage house? Mm-hmm. All these things we've heard from people before, they're, they might be keen to do it, but not necessarily sure how. So Minister Callan was announcing that today. My ministry is working on continuing to speed up and make a lot more transparent how houses are built and mm-hmm. make sure that we're getting the permits out the door as quickly as possible. Shouldn't a lot of this be handled by municipalities? Why does the provincial government want to get engaged in this? You've got lots on, lots on your plate yeah. from healthcare and education well, and a million other things. Well, uh, generally, municipalities handle this. Why does the provincial government want to get involved? Sure, and, and we're meeting with municipalities all week. Let's, let's, uh, let's say there's a spectrum. There's a spectrum when you look at municipalities across BC. There have been those who, in partnership with BC, have really been getting a lot more uh, construction done, 
doing their own permitting process, making it good for builders and homeowners to live there. Uh, there's been other municipalities that have either uh, not wanted to build more housing, which is some, or but not been able to. You know, they have an old process. It's all paper-based. I talked to one mayor the other day, and one application, when they weighed all the paper that all the permits uh, that the city required, the permit application weighed 75 pounds. And the city wanted a change in the permitting, and the builder had to go back and produce another 75 pounds worth of paper documentation. Now the city is digital. And you think that doesn't sound like much, mm-hmm. but if you're trying to get these permits out the door, the idea in 2023 that you can't go online to do that seems kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. So we've been, we've been helping the municipalities. This is a big change. The province has really stepped in, making secondary suites zoned right across the province, um, uh, triplexes, duplexes, making those also available for people to build. And what we're seeing is people take this up and taking down a, you know, an old single-family dwelling that might be worth you know, a million and a half, two million in the Vancouver area, mm-hmm. putting up a triplex, and we're seeing entire families be able to occupy that, generations of families. And that's, that's a lot better for everybody, a lot more affordable, and it's going to give us the housing that we need. Uh, I'm curious. Uh, we had the mayor on last week. We had uh, a variety of city councillors on last week because they made some changes in Vancouver where mm-hmm. uh, they're l- going to allow, depending on the size of the lot, up to eight units on the lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, single-family homes would be reduced in size on an average Vancouver lot from 2,800 square feet to 24. So more space and room could be given to a laneway. So the, the broader conversation around housing is o- ongoing uh, provincially and municipally and federally, one could argue. Uh, but do you f- fear pushback. What I mean by that is there are a lot of traditional single family home neighborhoods mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. people do not want to see the more people move in and more importantly, mm-hmm. just dealing with parking and cars and uh, sure. greater density, more people, because that's not what single family homes, one would argue, were set up for. Uh, there is a cultural fight here, a cultural difference. Do you worry a pushback from the public because they're going to say, wait a minute here, I've been here for 30 years and yeah. all of a sudden I got 15 more vehicles where I'm fighting for parking on my own street. Well, and, and respecting the, the fabric or the culture of a neighborhood, of a street, is really important in this, right? And that's, that's how applications do. You still have to have high standards, right, in terms of people applying. Mm-hmm. It's got to fit. It's got to answer those questions. Do we have the right infrastructure in place? Is there enough water and sewer and electricity getting into that part of the world to service more units? And things like parking, because we know in some parts of the city right now, parking is, is a challenge. You got to accommodate for that. What, what we're seeing though, Jez, is a lot of people coming in, especially if they're looking to get affordable. I'm seeing units go up now where, in that apartment unit, say there's there's 30 units, mm-hmm. only 10 of them are allotted to have a car, because it's right downtown. It's sitting, you know, a block from SkyTrain, and folks are making choices to say, this is the neighborhood I want to live in. I'll get a car share. I'll do a couple of other things, and I'm going to make this work because this is where I want to live. And if you look globally, and, and Vancouver is a global city, mm-hmm. you're seeing this challenge everywhere. And, and cultures do shift with respect to the car. How many cars, you know, three cars for a family. It's going to be tough in downtown Vancouver where it's just to find space. Mm-hmm. But we know that we've got to densify. We've got to get more people because the demands are so high. There are so many people, as you know, coming into B.C. every year. This creates a challenge for us because we need those folks because we're so short of workers in the healthcare and education and private sector we know we need to make the housing for people to be able to come in and, and be a part of our communities. 
Um, I, I know other communities in the past have uh, set a pathway to legalization. Uh, Delta is one of them. Mm-hmm. We're going to have uh, Councillor Dylan Kruger joining us at 5 o'clock in regards to what that community did, uh, what they learned, best practices, and what, what, what didn't work. Uh, I, do you worry that municipalities are going to go, okay, David Eby makes this announcement, Nathan Cullen's on the show, and he talks about the positives, but they are the ones who have to deal with neighbors, uh, especially in single-family neighborhoods, going, we don't want this, and do you worry municipalities might make it onerous? And what I mean by that is, okay, you have to have a license to have a, a secondary suite, and that will mm-hmm. require, instead of $50, $500. A garbage pickup, we're not going to double your cost, we're going to quadruple the cost. So now instead of $500 a year, you're going to pay $2,000 a year for garbage mm-hmm. pickup. So you make it onerous to actually even consider a secondary suite, or the rules would be it's going to cost you 10000 or 20000 right. to fix it up. Right. Do, you worry, and do you still have the power? Does Can a municipality actually stifle that through rules, regulations, uh, or through excessive costs? Yeah, I th- potentially, I doubt it. It'd be a mistake. I mean, a mistake in the sense. <laughs> yeah. Well, these are the, I'm, I'm, we live in these communities too, right? Yep. We as MLAs, as ministers, we're living in these communities. We know folks and family and, and see those tensions. The, those, those same mayors and councillors also know that we're short on teachers and folks to pick up the garbage and folks to work in our hospitals. So, you, you kind of can't have it both ways. I remember arguing with a mayor last year who said, we don't want to build more dense. We don't want to build more housing. We just want people to come from outside of my municipality and, and do all those services and work in our community. And it's like, I hate to break it to you, mayor, but you can't say the housing question is somebody else's problem. And responsible cities don't do that. They yeah. say we have an obligation here, especially when we've been investing things like more rapid transit and more SkyTrain and more schools. Like we as a province have been really wanting to and, and have been putting more money into that infrastructure. We gave municipalities a billion dollars last year extra on top of other transfer payments to do that infrastructure work, to make sure that communities remain livable, to have the amenities that we all want. Yeah. Part of the bargain is that we got to get more housing built and reward those communities that do it. So we're, I'm having a lot of conversations with mayors and, and building companies that are saying, clarifying the rules, making the permits nice and clean so that we, everybody understands them, and not saying we're going to kill housing development by taking five years to issue a permit. I just think that's, that's you know, bad faith. I think that's not how our cities were built in the first place, is by people disingenuously trying to stop uh, folks from coming in and just having, a, you know, progress in their own lives and building up our communities and our province. Minister, thanks for your time today. Really appreciate it. Hey, anytime. It's happy to be here. Let's talk about uh, Surrey, uh, because there's lots to talk about there. As you know, uh, last week we spent a lot of time talking about the Surrey Police Service. We learned uh, on Friday from Pradeep Kuner, who is a city councillor there and also a member of the audit committee uh, with the city of Surrey. Uh, and they were told recently that there's a $120 million request from the Surrey Police Service. Their budget was $50 million, and then they all of a sudden found it's $160 million, $112 million uh, more than the city of Surrey expected. That would mean potentially a 26% property tax increase. We also, of course, have much discussion over the hospital that is promised. Uh, joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, the issue is Eleanor Sturko. She's BC United MLA for South Surrey and Shadow Minister for Mental Health Addiction, Recovery and Education. Uh, Ms. Sturko, thank you for joining us. 
Thanks for having me, Josh. Where do we start? It is, Surrey, so many things to talk about in that community. Lots going on, growing quickly. Let's talk a little bit about the hospital first and foremost. The government says they're moving forward with it uh, and uh, it should be open uh, by 2030. Uh, your thoughts first and foremost, the location as well as the promise to build it and, and, and it won't be ready until 2030. Well, you said it in your intro, uh, but the reality is is that we're dealing with multiple crises in Surrey right now under the NDP. Healthcare, certainly one, education, and even public safety. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm actually not happy to see not only a further delay of the second hospital in Surrey, but you know also the fact that they have now expanded that budget by over a billion dollars, which is very concerning considering that no work has even taken place so far. Mm-hmm. What about the argument they make? Look, we're in, the, we're in a position where, you know, everything costs more. One only has to build a single family home to know challenges in regards to supply chains. And this is the nature of, of taking a bit of time to do it right. Number one, uh, there can be scope changes as well. And that drives of cost. At the end of the day, they are still building a much needed hospital for Surrey. Well, the reality is, is that we're starting to hear and we've heard, well, frankly, this entire time that the hospital that's being planned is is not the right plan. It's not a matter of waiting and getting things done right. It's a matter of waiting and not getting things finished. They've been promising this hospital for years. They still haven't really broken ground. Yes, they did it for a photo op, but things are not underway. And the longer they wait, the longer they delay, Mm -hmm. the more expensive this project is going to get. You just have to look at what's happened with the Massey Crossing to find out, you know, just how much of a delay this government puts on things. And, and frankly, I don't think it's acceptable. We are in a healthcare crisis now. They've been promising for years. And, you know, if you remember back to my by-election that was last year, they had promised to have progress done by now and that there would be irreversible progress done by this time. And frankly, we're just not seeing those results, and it's not fair to the people of Surrey. What do you what do you say to the argument that look, uh, there was an expansion of the Surrey Memorial Hospital? I think it was half a billion dollars on the BC Liberals, but not much else. In those sixteen years, they could have built another hospital. They could have been well on the way of planning for another hospital. They never did so. What do you say to that well, argument? Jazz. The reality is, and people have short memories, but in fact, when the half or the $500 million expansion of the Surrey Memorial Hospital was done. It was done in such a way that a second tower was going to be in the plan and was ready. Um, and in fact, the John, uh, or sorry, the Jim Pattison uh, outpatient clinic also built so that it could house an expansion. So, you know, there was a lot of foresight put into those expansions at the time under the former BC Liberal government, mm-hmm. so that when it was ready for expansion, those projects were ready to be um, expanded upon. And in fact, which is why it's so concerning now that we don't see much progress in terms of a plan or, or getting anything underway with the second tower that Adrian Dix has now promised for Surrey. Uh, let's uh, make this transition to Surrey policing for a second. As I said, we had Pardeep Kooner on, uh, city councillor, who uh, we got our hands on an internal memo. Uh, they were a bit gobsmacked where they were told that it's going to cost them an extra $112 million this year, in the middle of a fiscal year, uh, for, uh, for the Surrey Police Service. Uh, your thoughts on that in regards to the impact on Surrey taxpayers and potentially, who knows, maybe even BC taxpayers uh, in the near future? This is absolutely a project that doesn't only cost Surrey. It is absolutely costing all BC taxpayers at this point. And you know what? This is one of those examples of the adage, when you fail to plan, you plan to fail. Because these cost overruns are symptoms of a plan that's being made up as they go along. 
you just have to think back, Jazz. Do you remember in February of 2020 when Minister Farnworth gave the original plan the green light? Wally Opal had said there would be a one-time cost for capital and transitional costs that Mm -hmm. would be $40 million. And the reality is, is that the true cost of the transition is unknown. And now the minister has put the city of Surrey in a place where he's basically forcing the city to sign a blank check to the province. And, you know, I I don't really understand some of the arguments here that are being made by Minister Farnworth. and, And I have a hard time accepting some of his rationale because he said that, you know, and he used the police act to enforce his decision and said that he didn't want to destabilize policing in BC. But the reality is is that we have now heard, uh, you know, from the police chief that he hasn't yet landed on a policing model and he doesn't know how many people are needed to police in the city of Surrey. So we don't know what the cost of policing will be. We don't know how many people it would be. And so without knowing this information, how is it that Minister Farnworth came to the conclusion that it would be safer than to go with the RCMP that actually was able to provide a finite number of officers, which was 180 people, to keep the RCMP in Surrey? So <laughs> I, I have a hard time with that rationale. I think it's completely unfair, not only to the taxpayers of Surrey, but to provincial taxpayers overall, that a blank check is being signed that's already uh, in excess of $112 million over its uh, you know, budget for the year um, on something that was only supposed to cost $40 million. Yeah, uh, Councillor Cooner uh, on our interview Friday was her estimates, and she is an accountant and, like I said, chair of the audit committee there. Her estimates is probably going to clo- come close to $520 million. So there's a huge difference between that and the Opal report of a one-time cost of $40 million. That's why we stay on that story. Uh, my final question to you, I just want to talk to you a little bit about uh, uh, drug possession uh, now being banned in and around playground playgrounds. Uh, this, of course, uh, in regards to our, our conversation conversation around decriminalization uh, and the use of small amounts of illicit drugs, two and a half grams or less. Your thoughts on this new legislation that's come in, uh, which bans at least the use of hard dogs in and around playgrounds and where kids are? Well, it's not new legislation. People need to know that actually it was just a matter of the NDP asking the federal government to change their letter of agreement. Um, for what uh, falls under decriminalization. So to be honest, this is something that they could have done months ago and in fact should have been done prior to them fast-tracking. In their own words, they ran on a campaign of fast-tracking decriminalization and they didn't put in the safeguards. We've been saying this all along. This didn't involve legislation. They just had to ask for the agreement letter to be changed, which they now have. But there's many glaring exceptions here. They haven't included transit hubs or bus stops, or places where we have a lot of seniors, youth, children, families. And so, you know, again, it's like a rush job. They've taken away discretion from police in the general public to Mm -hmm. deal with people who are using drugs in public. And we're hearing time and again from people that they find this extremely problematic. And even from police themselves, it has had a significant impact on their ability to do their job and keep people safe. Eleanor, uh, thank you for your time. Look forward to chatting with you uh, in the near future. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks, Des. Canadian National Security Authorities have have what they consider credible intelligence that India was behind the June fatal shooting of Hadeep Singh Nijjar, who was a prominent Sikh leader uh, here in BC. He was designated a terrorist by uh, the government of India and says he was support of a support of a separatist movement uh, seeking an autonomous state um, uh, for Sikhs 
in Punjab or present-day Punjab um, called Khalistan. Mr. Nijer was shot dead in his truck by two masked gunmen outside the Nanak uh, Sikh Gurdwara temp, uh, Gurdwara in uh, in Surrey. Uh, it was a brazen killing. It outraged, um, obviously, his supporters um, and also intensified global uh, tensions between Sikh separatists and Mr. Narendra Modi, the Prime Minister of India's uh, nationalistic government. Canada is now home to about 770,000 people who report uh, Sikhism as their religion. And that was based on the last cen- uh, census. Um, and, of course, some of those folks support the Sikh independence movement, which seeks to create a sovereign homeland known as Khalistan from the state of Punjab in northern India. Uh, the Indian government, of course, fiercely opposes this. Uh, today, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau updated the uh, House of Commons on the slaying and the fact that Canadian national security authorities uh, having a, a credible intelligence that India was behind the fatal shooting. Take a listen. Any involvement of a foreign government in the killing of a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil is an unacceptable violation of our sovereignty. It is contrary to the fundamental rules by which free, open and democratic societies conduct themselves. As you would expect, we've been working closely and coordinating with our allies on this very serious matter. Conservative uh, Party leader Pierre Pauly also spoke uh, on the killing. Take a listen. If these allegations are true, they represent an outrageous affront to Canada's sovereignty. Our citizens must be safe from extrajudicial killings of all kinds most of all from foreign governments. Canadians deserve to be protected on Canadian soil. We call on the Indian government to act with utmost transparency as authorities investigate this murder, because the truth must come out. We must know who performed the assassination and who was behind the assassination. That was Conservative Party leader Pierre Paulia. Well, joining me now is Gurpreet Singh. He's an independent journalist and talk show host for Spice Radio. Uh, Mr. Singh, thank you for joining us. Thank you, yes. Thanks for inviting me and giving me this opportunity. Uh, your thoughts, first of all, on this news today, uh, early stages, of course. Um, what things are you hearing within the uh, Punjabi community here in the Lower Mainland? Well, the statement uh, coming from Trudeau actually vindicates uh, the Sikh activists who have been saying until now that uh, they see foreign hand behind Hardeep Singh Nijar's murder. They have uh, started a petition which received thousands of signatures asking for the Canadian government to look into this angle and uh, look into the possible meddling of the uh, meddling by the Indian government in Canadian affairs. So in a way, this statement uh, uh, vindicates what they have been saying until now. Even it vindicates uh, Hadeep Singh Nijjar posthumously because uh, the last interview he gave me was 18th of May, precisely a month before he was murdered, in which he, he, he saw this coming. He anticipated his death at the hands of the Indian agents. So uh, I would say that uh, it's nothing surprising for us, but, uh, but coming from a prime minister's mouth, it somehow uh, recognizes what 
Sikh activists have been saying until now. Um, uh, you're saying you spoke to him about a month before uh, he was killed. Uh, why mm. did Mr. Niger want uh, to see an independent Sikh state of Khalistan? I'm going to assume he lives here as a family here. Um, I don't think he was planning to head back anytime soon, just like most uh, <laughs> uh, Canadians of Indian heritage. This is home now. What was his thinking in regards to the support of Khalistan? Certainly, what could you gauge when you talked to him? Well, he was a uh, diehard Khalistani. There is no question about it. He believed in Khalistan as many other Sikh youngsters believe. But not every Sikh in uh, Canada believes in Khalistan. I mean, there, there, are, there are people who supported the referendum. There are people who did not support it. So Sikh community is very diverse. Not all the Sikhs want Khalistan, but there are there are some who are diehard Khalistanis who strongly believe in a separate homeland. And there is a, a history of bloodshed behind it. Mm-hmm. What happened in uh, 1984, everyone knows. The history of genocide, history of military invasion on the Golden Temple complex, the history of persecution of the Sikh community in Punjab. That that uh, brings the demand of Khalistan on the center stage. But it's, but it's not uh, the demand which is popular with every Sikh in Canada. That we need to clarify. Would you, would you clarify this as th- them as a vocal minority? Yeah, I would say vocal minority, but right now they are claiming that uh, more hundred, more than 100,000 people supported referendum that was held on 10th of September. Mm-hmm. So now they are saying it's not a vocal minority anymore. They are trying to imply that majority of the Sikhs support uh, Khalistan. Again, 100,000 is not a huge number. If we put things in perspective, if we take the Sikhs all together in North American uh, on the North American island. So that's not the case. I mean, 100,000 is still a small number. Mm -hmm. There is a huge majority of the Sikhs who do not support Khalistan, who believe in United India, let's face it. But uh, the fact is that this referendum again got so much support uh, because of the sympathy wave generated by the murder of Harif Singh Nijal right inside the Gurdwara. Mm -hmm. So... Moving forward now, there was a lot of talk there from Prime Minister Trudeau, uh, Pierre Polyev, in regards to an attack on Canadian sovereignty, that Canadian citizens should be able to protest and say what they wish mm. uh, and not be worried about uh, violence being afflicted upon them. Uh, what are you hearing in regards to what you think Mr. Niger's supporters would like to see done, number one? And number two, broader question, mm. what do you think we're actually capable of doing as Canadians, more importantly? See, they are satisfied with the statement made by Justin Trudeau. That is number one. The, the Global Mail report has been welcomed by uh, Hadeep Simijas supporters because they have been saying this until now. But right now they want more action. So apparently they have kicked out one diplomat, which, which they say is not good enough. They, they are saying actually we need to find out who the killers were and who were the masterminds. So until the, the, those people are brought to the book or to the justice, Mm-hmm. The story is not going to die very soon. Mm-hmm. So they really want justice for Hardeep Singh Nijar in terms of the arrests of his assassins and people behind his murder. What do you say to the argument that the Indian government, now if you look at the Indian economy, it's uh, well on its way to be a $5 trillion economy, give or take, two to five years. It will be probably the third largest economy in the world. So India, mm. like China, is rising, as it once had. Uh, it is an important part of you know, the great broader Indian identity now as an emerging superpower. Um, mm. They feel that a lot of the separatist movements in India are A, funded, uh, supported by Pakistan, uh, or Sikhs who live outside, not in India. And they will not jeopardize the growth of their nation, 
um, the the continued movement forward by that nation, by separatist movements, by other elements that scare off investment, that slow down India's rise. And if that means, and I don't mean to be callous here, uh, if that means uh, taking matters uh, in their own hands to the point where they are assassinating people in other lands, who they view as a threat, a national security threat to their country, that they're willing to do so. Now, I say that in the context of the United States killing the uh, Iranian gen, uh, general under Donald Trump. Um, you have Isra- the Israel government, Israeli government, uh, killing uh, members of Hezbollah and some senior uh, uh, Iranian scientists in regards to his nuclear program. You have Russia going after some of its uh, dissidents and oligarchs. Uh, I'm not saying it's a clean business. I'm not saying it's a fair business. I'm not saying it's the right business. Mm. But nations at its core worry about their economic security and a national security, and they will not allow expats living in other countries to jeopardize that. What do you say to that argument? Well, you know what? The Indian government should, uh, and they, it needs to look hard at itself in the mirror. I mean, you have created this narrative of Hindu Rashtra. You have created a lot of anxiety for the minorities. You are actually attacking minorities every day, right? So you have created that kind of environment. And whatever is happening in Canada, I would argue it's a spillover effect of what is happening in India right now, Hmm. what is happening on the ground. All the minorities are being targeted and shamelessly. And this current current government run by Mr. Modi, who is a Hindu supremacist leader, he's promoting all that. Mm -hmm. So this is all a spillover effect of what is happening in India. Let's face it. I mean, Khalistan movement was a dead movement until now. All of a sudden, referendum becomes a very huge issue. How come that? Yeah. I mean, this is this is a false equivalency being created by the the BJP government in India. So it benefits them by polarizing the Hindu majority against a Sikh minority. Secondly, we cannot rule out the possibility of um, the Indian agents being involved, as you have mentioned other cases uh, about other nations. I mean, Rao is definitely capable of doing that. We're speaking to Gurpreet Singh, independent journalist and talk show host for Spiced Radio. We're talking about um, the fatal shooting of Hardeep Singh Nijjar today. Canadian National Security Authorities um, have said that they have credible intelligence that India was behind the shooting of Mr. Nijjar. Of course, Mr. Nijjar um, was in support of, uh, of a sovereign homeland known as Khalistan from the state of Punjab in northern India. Um, which, of course, the Indian government uh, does oppose. Um, Mr. Niger was killed um, outside the Nanak Sikh Gurdwara in Surrey uh, in a very much a brazen um, killing by two mass gunmen, and they, of course, have not been captured. Uh, give me a call on the open line, 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell phone. What should Canada do in its response? Uh, let's go to Rob in Chilliwack. Hi, Rob. Hi, good afternoon, Jess. You know what? As for Trudeau, would I vote for the guy? No. Did he do the right thing? I think he did. I think he did absolutely the right thing. And if he's not going to uh, announce this, like I said to the to the producer there, to the world, unless there is abject 100% proof. Mm-hmm. Um, we cannot have uh, countries flying in assassins to take out people in a democratic country, even if it's not a democratic country, you shouldn't do that. But... I mean, this was a protest. It was a vote. And it, what if it's true what India did, it's wrong. Um, that That's my feeling on it. It's not as if what the Americans did in Iran. The Iranians took down a plane. That's 100% true. That's different going after their general. Mm-hmm. That's blatant retaliation. This is a democratic vote 
you know, because they want, I believe they, the Sikhs would like their own, is, am I correct, their own nation yeah, in they're, India? They're, yeah, it's a, we'll, we'll cover that yeah. in another program. But yes, they're looking for an independent uh, yeah, state. So, uh, uh, and it, but, you know, these are Canadians uh, predominantly. That's of, right, of, of, that's of, right. So they're voting yeah. on something that... It's not their country, is what I'm trying to say. But you're right. I, I, I agree I, with you. It's a d- democratic country. The, they have every right to, to express him. Uh, though is is wrong. Mm-hmm. What Trudeau did, though, I believe, like I say, he he did stand up, and uh, I think he did do the right thing to let the world know. Come on, Mr. Modi, Prime Minister Modi, this is this is wrong. I mean, we this is, you can't be flying in people to other countries and taking out our citizens. Rob, thank so, you for your call. I appreciate it. Just, yeah, I appreciate that, Rob. Uh, Grippy, let me ask you this question. We've got a lot of time here, but uh, how much of this do you think, you know, is the Indian government saying, you know, we told you guys this, that the separatists are causing trouble in India back in the 1980s. You still have not been able to capture those people behind the Air India bombing, what was planned in Canada, and that led to the death of many people. And here it's happening again, a, a different version, a, a more modern sort of uptick in this Khalistan movement, whether it's a vote or not. Same sort of thing. And we are not going to allow it to build either in our country, in the case of Punjab, or we're not going to allow it to grow uh, in other nations as well, because there has been an assassination in, in U- UK as well, a similar case. Um, that We're just not going to put up with it. And you Canadians over and over again have proven you just won't deal with this stuff for four decades. And we're not going to leave our sovereignty, our nation security to Canada, because you folks over there just can't get anything done. You know what, just, uh, these are just claims and counterclaims. The India government can continue to talk about Air India. But here is the thing. India has lost any moral right to question Canada on Air India specifically. Mm-hmm. I tell you why. Number one, they, they were the ones who gave visa to Riputaman Singh Malik, the former Air India suspect and a Sikh millionaire who was the alleged financier. Although he was acquitted by the court, but let's not forget the same judge had said that his acquittal was not a pronouncement of his innocence. He was acquitted because of the lack of evidence. So he gets visa. Not only that, the story doesn't end there. He goes to India and he meets the head of RANW. How do you justify that nonsense? Mm-hmm. And then he writes a letter of support to Mr. Modi. I mean, you keep on telling Jagmeet Singh or Trudeau that what are you doing and, uh, with the Air India suspects and all that. Mm-hmm. What have you been doing? You have been giving red car- carpet welcome to person like Malik. How do you justify that? Yeah. Uh, I mean, Mr. Can you imagine if, uh, if you, U.S. intelligence officer dining and uh, whining with uh, a person like Osama bin Laden? Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. not going to happen. And Mr. Singh, uh, I really appreciate your time. We'll have to uh, carry on with this conversation uh, because it is a very, uh, it is a, a very complex issue, uh, but one obviously Absolutely. that is playing out in Canadian soil, so it's a very important one as well. Uh, Gurpreet, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for having me. So let's revisit uh, a story that uh, we talked about on Friday's show. We had Pradeep Kooner on the show. She is a, a, a city councillor in Surrey. She is also the chair of uh, Surrey's audit committee. Now, uh, in t- uh, earlier part of this year, uh, the Surrey Police Service um, had allocated, or the city had allocated $48 million for in, out of their budget towards the Surrey Police Service as part of the transition. Now, as of June, at the end of June, the SPS reported that they had spent about $15 million of that $48 million. That's the budget. Well, there were, the city asked for updated numbers, and 
all of a sudden, the Surrey Police Service for 2023 um, says the budget will be $160 million. In other words, a $112 million increase over the budget approved by the city. Now, put that in context. Uh, if the city of Surrey increases its property tax by 1%, it raises about $4.2 million. To deal with this $112 million surprise or shortfall, whatever you want to call it, that means Surrey residents would be handed a 26% increase in property taxes just to cover the cost if the city can't find this money within the allocated budget. Uh, so all this was brought up by Ms. Cooner uh, in an uh, internal uh, document that I got my hands on. Uh, Ms. Cooner was on the show yesterday, uh, and she says the challenge right now when dealing with the Surrey Police transition is that they don't know what the projections are. Take a listen. I think we need to go back and um, have further discussions with the SPS um, union and understand where these numbers are coming from. But I just don't see how in salaries it would go up $112 million over the next three months. There's no plan. So we don't even know if, what their projections are for hiring new people. We haven't gotten any information whatsoever to how this $112 million increase could occur. Now, uh, within our conversation, uh, Ms. Cooner told me that uh, she believes, and she's an accountant, uh, that when all the costs are in, it will probably be, the transition will probably cost close to $520 million. Now, keep in mind, when Doug McCallum was mayor, they had a report. It was called the Opal Report, prepared by Wally Opal. That report said the, the transition uh, would involve a one-time $40 million cost. Ms. Cooner now says she's gone through the books and she believes at this point it'll be $520 million. Uh, I did ask her about, of course, our provincial government saying that they were setting aside $150 million from all taxpayers to go towards that transition. That, of course, was announced a few months ago by uh, the Solicitor General and the Premier of British Columbia. Take a listen to Ms. Cooner's response on whether whether that $150 million would be able to cover the overall costs. The $150 million would cover a year and a half max. If you were to look at 10 years, we're looking at a billion dollars. This is extremely difficult for Surrey residents to take in. And this is not a cost that should be attributed to them because of what the province decides for them. And if they're not, they need to pony up the money. If this is their plan, this is what they want for the city, then they should have to pay for it. We shouldn't have to. Well, joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, the police transition is Barge Dehan. Uh, he is a former member of the board of the Vancouver Police Department. Uh, and you were, correct me if I'm wrong here, co-chair as well? Vice chair. Vice chair. Uh, so you have a pretty good understanding of policing and certainly, uh, you know, dealing with a large force. Uh, now, initially, correct me if I'm wrong here, when the conversation about the Surrey Police Service had begun, uh, the Vancouver Police Department actually wrote a report, did they not? Yes, a report was written on the request of the city of Surrey. It was part of a technical assistance agreement for the, um, for the development of the SPS transition plan. Mm-hmm. It's a report. That was done. It was done confidentially for the city of Surrey, and the report was completed in April uh, 2019. 2019. And what did the report overall say? The report basically painted the existing environment, the environmental scan, looking at the existing policing that was happening, and then uh, looked at recruiting, training, 
technology, information, various systems, fleets, and all of that. So it gave them a broad understanding as a large police force, which uh, Vancouver is. This is the kind of stuff you guys are going to have to look at if you want to move forward with a municipal police force for a community that size. It was a very well laid out report with, um, you know, uh, topics that are pertinent to policing. It was quite detailed. Uh, and then, now, if we look look back at history a little bit, Surrey had p- put together um, the Opal Report, and as I said, that was a $40 million one-time cost uh, to the city in regards to the transition itself. How do you think, after that report was done, give me a sense of y- your perceptions of what Sur- Surrey did and where you think they got it wrong. Well, there was the Vancouver Police Department report, then there's the Wally report. Mm-hmm. So those reports were supposedly used to come up with whatever transition plan Surrey was going to put in place. Mm-hmm. Uh, what exactly happens, I certainly am not privy to that. But when we talk about this $40 million transition cost, mm-hmm. there was about, uh, 19, uh, about $19 million for capital. It was a capital item. Mm-hmm. And the balance was staff recruiting and so on. But it was to be spent over the entire transition period, over three years. Hmm. So it's not one time, but there were one-time charges in the Mm -hmm. sense that they were towards transition. And as the Surrey Police Service is being built, recruits are being hired, then there's going to be your annual operating costs associated with the labor and so on. Mm -hmm. I think what happened here is that the, the decisions that were being made, they were hasty, Politically, with political consideration, a small clique of people that were in policing and adequate budgeting wasn't done, risk, um, uh, risks weren't assessed, and then we also were hit by COVID. Mm-hmm. That changed a whole bunch of things. Mm-hmm. So I think it, it's, it speaks to a lack of solid plan, adequate budgeting, and good public consultation. So we find ourselves in a crisis situation where the public, I don't think, has confidence in the process that has unfolded to date. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you fix this? And what I mean by that is just the dollars. I mean, what what do you think? I mean, I'm not asking for a specific number, but your thoughts on what a transition would take in regards to moving from RCMP to municipal. Uh, You know, you've got capital costs, you've got, you know, it could be a gun range, whatever it may be, your thoughts on what you think that transition should look like and what the real cost roughly in your mind, because as a for, former uh, board member, Vancouver Police Department board, you get a sense of what the costs are. You know where the challenges lie as a board member going through the numbers. What do you think, you know, roughly what that transition probably could cost, would cost? Well, one of the things that I've felt when this process was unfolding, uh, my personal concern was, Will there be people on the SPS board and at the city of Surrey level who are experienced and knowledgeable about managing a big transition of this type? Hmm. It's, it's unprecedented in the last 40 years in BC. So, um, so, so that's the underlying issue. Were there people experienced to do this? Mm-hmm. And I think the, the situation tells us that they weren't. So you think so, the, the, the board at that time, present board, was not capable of taking on watching this transition? I looked at the initial board composition mm-hmm. and where it is today. 
most of the original board members are still board members. Mm -hmm. Many of them come from the uh, union side uh, side of the economy, labor mm -hmm. movement, or health services. There's one or two that do have some policing background, but no solid experience in change management. That's where the problem lies. And then whatever budgeting that was done, both through the police service now mm -hmm. and also city budgeting process, I think it's been flawed. I don't think there's really accurate numbers. What's it going to take to fix it? Yeah. I think there's only two choices. One is... If you're going to stick with the transition to Surrey Police Service, then you bite the bullet, whatever the costs are, you do it. I would say that once all the recruits have been hired to what the model said around 805, we're looking at an operating budget without capital of well over $225 million. And to get to there, it's going to take you minimum four years. There aren't enough potential recruits available in the recruitment pool in the province or in the country. That's a big challenge. So the operating, the 200 million you said, that's just for the yearly operating budget, once you get to the maximum number of, of uh, staff. Well, you know, uh, when we look back, I believe that uh, it was brought to the attention of the city of Surrey and the police service that the RCMP, its, its uh, members were talking about unionizing. Yep. And that there were going to be pressures on RCMP's budgets. So I'm not sure if that consideration was taken into the budget process. So one of the things, you know, you have to do is you look at your risks, both financial and other human resource risks. Mm -hmm. I don't think that was done. Can this be fixed? I mean, I know you're saying you can do it. You got to bite the bullet and spend the money. But as someone who's been around boards uh, and around politics, can this be done? Can this be fixed in regards to whatever the transition is, whether they're going to go SPS or RCMP? I've tried to stay away from that broader conversation. To me, it's always been about the dollars. Can this actually, the transition actually occur in your mind still? I think it still can occur. Yeah. One problem or challenge is that under the Police Act, the mayor of the city of Surrey is the chair of the police board. And now you have a mayor who doesn't want SPS. The city hasn't really worked out how it's going to go forward, neither the province. So that creates a vacuum of leadership mm -hmm. and it creates uncertainty. People's confidence in the process is, is way low. Yeah. And I think the, the key thing here for leadership here is to make decisions, whatever it's going to take to restore public trust, because Policing is all about public safety and public trust, but it can be fixed. We are speaking to Baraj Dahan. He's a former member of the Vancouver Police Board. Uh, he has um, lots uh, of knowledge in regards to how police work behind the scenes, in regards to dollars that are needed, in regards to how big organizations work as well. Um, so we brought him in to, to talk a little bit about the Surrey Police Transition because the VPD did put the initial report together in regards to some of the requirements that would be and, and the needs that will be there for a community the size of Surrey when you are putting together a brand new police force. Um, Barge, in this case now, moving forward, uh, you know, there's still that tension between the city, certainly the council, the majority on council and, and, and the province. Uh, do you feel hopeful that there, there can be a solution there moving forward in regards to the, the numbers, in regards to making sure Surrey uh, 
taxpayers aren't overwhelmed, or for that matter, even BC taxpayers don't get pulled into it. To a certain degree, I mean, one could argue that BC taxpayers probably may be spending more money for this transition, just because of the size of the city and its impact on Metro Vancouver. Yeah, well, I guess um, if the mayor and the, the majority members of the council that are with her, if they swallow their pride and accept the decision of the province, mm-hmm. that it's, uh, sorry, please serve us, then you move forward. Mm-hmm. And then you have to negotiate with the province. Maybe they have to kick in more money. But that's one way to fix it. The other way to fix it is stop this transition mm-hmm. and say we're going to revert back to the RCMP. RCMP is still well-resourced, human resource-wise. They have their fleet. They have all the resources. So that can be done. Long-term, though, if it's a Surrey Police Service, uh, say three, four years for it to ramp up to its full modeling that was done in terms of number of officers, I think the annual operating cost will be way over $250 million per year. Per year, per and, year. and then other costs. I mean, you almost can see the provincial government having to put in more money yes. just to see this through uh, because of perhaps, um, uh, you know, they made decisions too quickly in the past in regards to approving it, whatever it may be, because the $40 million is is... Not a number. I clearly you don't believe, and I don't believe, and I think most people don't believe either. Uh, Bart, thank you for your time. We'll have you back in. We'll talk a little bit about this because this story's not going anywhere. <laughs> okay, <laughs> thank you. I'd be happy to come back. Let's revisit our top story uh, today. Premier David Eby uh, announced uh, that uh, there'll be a new pilot program that will provide 3,000 homeowners with for- forgivable loans of up to $40,000 to help cover the cost of creating rental suites. The program is set to launch in April of 2024. And of course, this will come after uh, the fall legislative session uh, where it is expected a new legislation will pass making secondary suites legal every everywhere uh, in the province. As you know, we were speaking to Minister Nathan Cullen at 3 o'clock on this issue, Uh, but there's sometimes uh, a difference between what the provincial government will announce and, of course, the reality at the local level, at the municipal level, because every community is going to have a different perspective in regards to uh, secondary suites, whether you're living in Delta or Prince George or Vancouver or Fort St. John. Joining me now to talk a little bit about legalizing secondary suites is Dylan Kruger. He is a councillor in the city of Delta. Dylan, welcome. Jazz, thanks for having me. Uh, I want to bring you on board because um, the city of Delta has, um, uh, has a program to legalize secondary suites. Walk me through a little bit about how you got to that transition, the conversation uh, in its early stages, and where you were able to get this program up and running. We first uh, legalized secondary suites in 2010, and at the time it was a very big community conversation, very different than the conversation today. Now it's almost a given because we've had 13 years of this program. But at the time what we were finding with our bylaw officers is we had thousands of uh, recognized uh, illegal suites popping up across the, our community. And when you have illegal suites, uh, you know that people are going to do this anyway. We had situations that were unsafe. They were not meeting BC building code. We had fire risks. We had people that had converted really glorified crawl spaces into secondary suites. Mm-hmm. And yet there are people, there's always going to be people, especially today in such precarious housing situations that, that they're going to get taken advantage of. They're going to take the uh, the the this, the opportunity to stay in the suite possibly at a, at a better rate mm-hmm. and we felt it at the time 13 years ago it was very important to ensure okay let's legalize them let's get it on the record let's at least ensure that these places are up uh, to building code standard uh, so we had a number of years where we offered a suite light program where we were advertising to people hey if you've got a space 
may or may not be up to code, but you've been advertising it as a suite. Let's get it into compliance. Come and uh, you can meet our, our minimum. You know, forget about everything else. Let's get it up to code. That way, at least, uh, you know, we recognize it. It's on our radar and we can monitor it and ensure safety. So it's been great uptake and, and, and we've uh, pretty much uh, uh, legalized every uh, suite that we had on our record at the time. So it's been a great success. Hmm. Certainly today, we need the suites. I don't know any young family that's buying a single family home that doesn't need the suite as a mortgage helper. Plus, the suites themselves have been desperately needed rental stock for people. Uh, across the housing spectrum that are looking for housing. So when you say uh, meeting the building code, so it's mostly electrical, uh, fire issues, that sort of thing? Yeah, electrical, fire suppression, sound separation, uh, to the extent that can be mitigated. Uh, and, and they have been updated over time. So even uh, new houses that are being built today, the standards are very different than even 10, 13 years ago when we started this program. But the philosophy at the time was, uh, let's get you to that minimum standard because, uh, fr- frankly, it's in any city with over 100,000 people you it's it's the the lower the more accessible you make it to people mm-hmm. to say we're not going to penalize you we actually want to encourage you to come forward to legalize your property mm-hmm. it's better for that end user it's a safer product and and we're looking for safe accommodations for people in our city so uh, uh, what's the cost to legalize your suite i know every uh, uh, homeowner is going to have a, a different charge i'm just thinking back to the Three o'clock hour, I had one woman call me from Burnaby, and, and the situation there may be different, I don't know, but her name was Aurora. She said that she spent $194,000 on legalizing the suite. I mean, if that's the cost, most people aren't going to legalize their suites. H- how is yours different in regards to a sense of what the cost is for most homeowners? It's, it's so uh, dependent on the age of the home. Uh, the standard that the home was built to at the time. Again, if you're talking about a home that was built 10, 15 years ago, very different than a house that was built in the 1960s or 1970s. So there's quite a range of, I've heard as little as a couple thousand dollars up up to the number that your caller mentioned. But certainly, what a great opportunity with this provincial program where it makes sense for the right people who are thinking about, oh, should I do it? But gosh, that upfront cost of 30, 40 grand, if the province can come in with, with a loan to help to get people to legalize those suites and get them onto the market, I see that as a really positive thing. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think in this province there's going to be pushback though? And what I mean by that is a lot of single family neighborhoods, uh, very quiet. They buy those homes uh, for that very reason. They've been there for sometimes decades, right? This is the culture, the feel of a, of, of a community. And then all of a sudden you open it up to suites. And let's say you get 10 suites in, in down one street, you've added more people and uh, you've added more garbage pickup. And probably to, for most people in their daily lives, you've added more vehicles on the street. Sometimes it's difficult to find parking. In some areas, brand new areas, where they do have suites for every home, uh, it's very difficult. It feels like probably New York City when you're looking for a parking spot. Um, do you expect pushback from the public? Now, maybe not in Delta, uh, but do you think you're going to get pushback in other communities in British Columbia on this one? Absolutely. I think any time changes to quote-unquote, neighborhood character are introduced, you're going to receive pushback from people who have lived in a certain area and developed certain expectations of what daily life is, in some cases for decades, and all of a sudden government's coming in and saying, no, we're going to change the fundamental face of, of, of your neighborhood. Now, this is part of a larger much larger conversation on the nature of housing. We know we've been told by senior government, both in BC and across Canada, that municipalities need to do more that we have not been approving the required number of housing units to meet today's 
demand, let alone the demand that we know is going to be coming in the future. So we know we have to do a better job of densifying existing neighborhoods, but that that is the problem with infill. So the policy that we put in place in Delta, which I think is a fair, reasonable compromise, is you have to have the parking on site. So Hmm. any single family home, we require two parking spots for the principal residence and one parking spot for the suite. So yes, there are situations where we have spillover parking onto the streets, but that's not necessarily the fault of the street. I, uh, of the suite. I know uh, single-family homes with no suites that have, uh, you know, six, seven, eight family members living there, four, five, six cars. Like the suite's not necessarily the problem when it comes to the parking. Mm-hmm. But we should ensure that by all reasonable standards, we're requiring that parking. My concern with potential provincial changes is: is that overriding existing municipal rules? Okay. Now, do you see some municipalities actually saying, you know what, we're going to, we don't believe what this government's doing. I don't buy it. And our community's not going to support it because, hey, David Eby can say what he wants, but I'm the one who's got to listen to uh, Bob down the street uh, who runs into me at the grocery store as mayor, as councillor. I got to have him uh, yelling at me while I'm out buying groceries. Can you see some uh, council saying, wait a minute here? That business license for the year, which is 50 bucks, we're going to charge you 500 uh, And the garbage pickup, which we double because you've got a secondary suite, we're going to actually quadruple it. We're going to pay more. Do you see some communities potentially being um, uh, making it tougher for those secondary suites to, to, uh, to actually open? If they retain the ability to do so, absolutely. And that's why I'm so interested in seeing how the legislation will be worded this fall on this and a number of other changes that we know are coming forward, including allowing up to a fourplex on every single family home in BC. Does it supersede existing municipal rules or is it simply allowable on paper and easy enough for municipalities to skirt? But we are, they say municipalities are the level that's closest to the people. Mm -hmm. We are geographically closest. Our city halls are closest to people's homes. It's much easier to go to your local city hall than to take the ferry down to Victoria. We hear it. We hear it in the grocery store. We hear it on the street sometimes more than our provincial counterparts. So it is certainly difficult to sometimes take the heat for decisions that are being very much imposed on us by senior levels of government. Do you see this as a broader uh, uh, debate uh, fight against traditional single-family homes? I mean, this broader conversation, like is the era of the single-family home done now in Metro Vancouver in your mind? Because we keep talking about secondary homes. Where I had the mayor on last week, we were talking about uh, reducing the size of the average single-family home to allow more space for uh, laneway homes. In a big lot in Vancouver, you can now build up to eight units, smaller lots, four units. Um, We're talking about everything but worrying about the single-family home. Is that done now in Metro Vancouver in regards to planning and the broader discourse? I would say broader than that, in the North American context, the single-family home was the product of the post-World War baby boom reality. Uh, the, the the dream of the, the big house with the white picket fence and the big backyard, that was a post-war shift in society that I think we are moving away from because, frankly, I am not aware of many people today in their 20s, 30s, and 40s with dual incomes, good six, even six-figure incomes, who could even reasonably dream of purchasing a single-family home to live in Metro Vancouver, the most one of the most desirable places on earth to live. And that is going to come with a cost. We're going to continue to see more densification. We are required. Delta is one of 10 municipalities in BC on the naughty list. so-called naughty list. <laughs> will be required to meet certain standards. And we've seen in other jurisdictions. Ontario is a little bit ahead of us with this. Municipalities that don't meet that standard will have that standard imposed on them by, by, uh, by provincial order. So certainly I, I think it's fair comment that for the upcoming 
for the for for the gen as baby boomers continue to retire and millennials become the dominant force in the workforce, the dominant GDP creator uh, are the ones that are actively having families. We're not going to see those living in cities, living in single family homes. Um, do you think this legislation, the way it's worded, do you want it to go further? Or are you just happy with right now where you think it's headed, or do you think it's it's enough? On on secondary suites, I mean, we've we've had them for thirteen years in in. Delta, so I can gripe on some minor points, but I mean it's it's a given for us. I think certainly if you're there should be no excuse for cities. Like if you're within an hour of downtown Vancouver and you're not allowing secondary suites, we got bigger issues there. I'm much more interested in uh, what we know is going to be coming uh, from the Ministry of Housing later this fall on, as I mentioned, uh, requirements for up to a fourplex for every single family uh, lot. Uh, in BC, I'm questioning how that's going to work, uh, and also I- ensuring how these targets are actually going to be managed and met. Uh, this is the direction. Like, we're not we're not outliers here. Uh, Ontario has done this. Uh, California has done this. New Zealand has done this. Major metropolitan areas are realizing that, to a certain extent, the buck does start stop with municipalities. We have not been approving enough housing, in a certain sense. That is because we are a product of these procedures that have been put in place that, that benefit existing landowners. But we're finally seeing the repercussions of that, and it's hurting uh, those that are underhoused and those that are unhoused. And we need to make changes. Dylan Kruger, thanks for your time today. Jazz, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.